Hello, Elspeth. Hi. <laughs> I think it's suddenly fair that we introduce you to okay. our audience. So who are you? I am Elspeth. I'm the Education and Public Engagement Officer for ICRAG. Um, and I'm also a trained paleontologist. I'm doing my PhD on paleontology at the University of Manchester at the same time as working. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of work. Busy, busy, busy. So what's your PhD about, really quickly? So I am what's called a paleoecologist. Right. So I look at ecology, but of um, ecosystems that were around 150 million years ago. So I look at plants and animals and how they interact and how things changes over time and also over big geographic areas as well. Right. So we're talking about hundreds of square kilometers to... Do you have like millions. a favorite area or is it like worldwide on a specific time period? Oh, that would be telling. Um, so, <laughs> so actually I work on the late Jurassic right. um, and I focus in on the Morrison Formation, which is uh, obviously late Jurassic but it's in Midwest North America. So that's mm. where you get all of the, the big beasties. So like Stegosaurus, Brachiosaurus, right. all of the ones that you heard about when you were growing up. Yeah, dinosaurs, um, amazing. And have you done any science engagement uh, events before like this one? Not like this. Not no, like this, this no. <laughs> is my first time ever doing any sort of recording or uh, proper media stuff, but I am really big into science communication. I've been doing it for years and years and years. I started as an undergrad, so about six years ago now, um, and I've just been doing it all the way through uh, my undergraduate, master's and PhD. And when it got to the point that I was doing more science communication than I was actual PhD research, I, I kind of realized that this was what I really wanted to do with my life and I see, yeah. Um, yeah, continue on with it. So. I thought I would apply for the job over here in Dublin and um, I got it and I've been here for about three or four months now and I have honestly, and I'm not just saying this because this isn't Icaragorama podcast, but <laughs> honestly I have loved every minute of it so far. Oh, yeah, it's man. wonderful. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, like, so far the people we've received on the podcast have all said that they really like iCrag, so, mm -hmm. and I do love iCrag as well, oh, so <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really nice place to work. Yeah, and it's a lovely community of people as well. Everyone's just so nice and welcoming and, yeah, they've just made me feel at home in a completely different, well, not completely different country, but a different country yeah. from the UK where obviously I, I have lived I yeah, we, we'll talk life. about Brexit in an oh, other episode. Oh, no. Oh, please, no. <laughs> no, let's talk about something <laughs> more positive. This, This is iCragorama, the podcast about all things iCrag. I'm Ben Couvin. And I'm Elspeth Wallace. Season 1, episode 8. Today, we're talking to Shane Terrell. Shane Terrell is a lecturer at NUI Galway. Hi Shane. Hi. <laughs> First, your research is about source to sync. So tell us what is source to sync? Well, I guess source to sync is one of the things I look at. I'm more looking at um, sand, the yeah. origins of sand, and using sand as a tool and using fingerprints, uh, chemical fingerprints in sand as tools to help constrain source to sink models. Right. So it's more about the sort of tools you might use to resolve source to sink 
so source thing is certainly something I'm interested in, but it's one of the sort of applications right. of the sort of techniques and tools that, that I helped develop during my research, yeah. But I guess, like, in essence, uh, the, if I'm being really reductionist, uh, I, uh, I like sand. <laughs> <laughs> what does that imply? So yeah. um, how does I like sand make you a uh, researcher? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so, so if we think about like how materials get transported on the surface of the earth, right. whether it's how, how sediment gets transported, whether it's by wind, whether it's by uh, water, river systems, deep water systems, and whether it's by ice, okay? Even if you look at the modern surface, we can learn a huge amount by knowing where that sediment's been sourced from, right? You think of a, a huge modern fluvial system like the Mississippi. Uh, which is an area, uh, so, uh, some of the research I've been involved in has looked at that. And you think about, we can see how sand from different tributaries has mixed. We can see uh, how it's made its way through the entire transport system and how it feeds into something like the Gulf of Mexico. And that's just a modern system. You look at that large, modern-scale fluvial system. And then you, you think about actually what we can also do, because, you know, sand gets preserved in piles of sedimentary rock, mm -hmm. is go back through that archive and see how those things have changed through time. So by looking at these, these fingerprints, these unique chemical signatures in individual sand grains and in individual components in sediment and in sedimentary rock, it's an archive that tells us uh, it's something about the evolution of the planet. It's basically like a tape recorder, okay? Yes, yeah, now, okay. It's a tape recorder, but we don't really know how to read the information from the tape recorder, and it's not a complete record, you know, just bits missing. Yeah. So we've just sort of put it together using these different tools. And so we learn things about, say, the evolutions of big rivers like the Mississippi, or we could use these tools to track how sediment has filled into an ancient sedimentary basin, a place where we might now find uh, hydrocarbons or groundwater. Or we could use it to track sources of ice-rafted debris, material uh, scraped in ice streams, calved as icebergs from a glaciated margin, a material drifts out to sea, the iceberg melts, the material drifts to the, or sinks to the bottom, we can now track where that material might have come from. So we can say something maybe about the behaviour of those ice streams and we have a record going back into the deep past about how that might have been in the past. So, yes, I like sand as reductionist. <laughs> All right, yeah. so you're looking at uh, sand mm -hmm. grains, mm -hmm. individual sand grains that yep. you can track, yep. and you're looking at their provenance. Exactly. And yep. the applications yes. are... There's two sort of prongs to this research. The application of new tools, new ways of reading that information, or new signals that we're looking at in different minerals. And the second part of that is the application of it. Uh, what sedimentary basins are we looking at? Modern systems are we looking at sedimentary basins? Are we looked at looking at records of ice rafted debris. So a lot of the research I'm involved in the moment is looking at uh, sediment uh, that has fed into basins offshore Ireland in the geological past since essentially, well, back as far as the Carboniferous, up through the, the Permo-Triassic, looked at the Jurassic into the Cretaceous, and also looked at some modern sediments in the Irish offshore, relatively recent sedimentation. So it has a broad range of application, and from an applied perspective, it has applications for, you know, uh, predicting the, the quality of reservoir or aquifer or sandstones and stuff like that. But it has lots of academic applications as well. Well, I was going to ask a little bit more about ice rafted debris. Mm, yeah. So kind of how old are we talking about and how do you know it's ice rafted? So I was lucky enough to 
collaborate with a, a colleague who at the time was working with the British Antarctic Survey. Mm-hmm. And I had been developing this tool that looked at lead isotopes in felspar grains. Okay. So the guy I was working with was a, a friend for a long time. He thought this could be something that could be applied to look at Eisrath debris in offshore Antarctica. And at the same time, I was based in UCD at the time, mm-hmm. there, was, there was a guy who was working on cores from the outer part, soft sediment cores, soft uh, sediment cores from the Porcupine High and just the margins of the Porcupine High offshore west of Ireland. And it all sort of came into place that this, this technique is something we could apply blo- both in the offshore of Antarctica and offshore Ireland as well. And uh, we got great, we, it actually worked really, really well. And just to give you an example of that, so first of all, to answer the question about the ice rafted debris, mm-hmm. so when we're looking at this deep part of the marine environment and we're looking at an area that's fairly low energy mm-hmm. and the really only mechanism by which we can get coarser grained material out into those areas is if they're carried on these icebergs and the icebergs melt. Mm-hmm. Now We're outside of areas where there's active uh, turbidity currents or anything like that. Yes. No turbidites. Yeah, yeah. So the only mechanism is so if we pick out layers where there is a higher average grain size, mm-hmm. the suspicion is that they're ice rafted debris, and actually there's an accepted grain size value by which that material can't be moved around by mm-hmm. currents, and therefore must have this ice rafted origin. Okay. So uh, what um, it was like, I call Lee Toms, who, who was a PhD student, who had looked at the age of these cores from the Irish offshore a record that he had dated to go back to about 250,000 years ago. And he had picked out these uh, layers of ice debris because they were much coarser than the surrounding sediment. Right. And so then I came, got involved by analysing, separating out the grains, and specifically the felspar grains, from those, from those coarse layers. Blasting them with a laser, that material gets carried into a mass spectrometer, and I measured the different lead isotopes, and it's the different the ratios of the dis- different lead isotopes that actually define a unique fingerprint, which we can then match to potential sources. Okay. And what we found when we did this was that during Lee, Lee had other proxies here uh, for cold uh, glacial conditions and interglacial okay. conditions, and what we noticed was that during the glacial conditions, the signature of those sand grains was completely different, and we were able to match them to sources from North America. Whereas during the warmer periods, the stuff that was coming in was all coming from Britain and Ireland. And so we were able to link this to this known, these known cycles of warming and rapid cooling. It was linked to this sort of cyclicity in climate and linked to these big events called Heinrich events, where you get these massive ice streams carrying loads of material out the Hudson Strait into the North Atlantic. These are mad as of ice cream. Ice creams. These are, <laughs> these are maddas of icebergs, right. <laughs> sort of pouring out into the Atlantic, carrying that material uh, into the deep Atlantic, even as far as the pork margins of the Porcupine High, and then the icebergs melting and and releasing those those layers of coarse ice rafted debris must have covered the entire floor of the Atlantic when these events occurred. So yeah, it was a nice thing to be able to show by just looking at the signature with an individual sort of sand grain component. You think of the the kind of like glacial map of um, the UK and Ireland Mm -hmm. and you've got all of the glaciers on Scotland and Mm -hmm. over Ireland and kind of down to around Bristol in the UK, um, so below the southern coast of Ireland. And 
the arrows on that map are from Scotland mm. down the way. Yeah. So to be getting this glacial deb- debris from practically over the other side of the world yeah. is super interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's always there's cool. always a little bit of material coming from mm-hmm. the British-Irish ice sheet. Uh, there's always a little sprinkling of that material making its way into the system. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's completely dominated by the stuff from uh, the Laurentide ice sheet or the Greenland mm-hmm. ice sheet. And sometimes it's it's more dominant signal. So it's always there seems to be this interesting balance between the yeah. two systems. It's really intriguing and we've only scratched the surface. Other people have used different proxies to look at this and, and have done far more detailed work on this. I don't know how we've talked for so long about glaciation because it's not something I'm particularly expert in, but anyway. What are you me. expert in? What is your expertise, would you say? It would be in those those techniques, those signals, and sedimentology, I, I would say, in general. So sort of not particularly glacial sedimentology, but sort of more um, uh, terrestrial um, and fluvial and uh, sort of shallow marine stuff. You know. But looking at those systems and, and looking at the nature of the sandstones in those systems. Right. Would you like to help me write up my uh, sedimentology section of my PhD? For, for the right <laughs> price, no problem. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's more about how you trace these sediments then. Yes, yeah. because uh, these signals that we might see vary depending on the kind of environment we're, we're looking at. So part of what I do is data collection and, and geochemistry. Mm-hmm. And, then, and we use standard techniques that have been used for a long time and we use and test new techniques as well. But one like, thing, Likewise, for example? Uh, well, some of the new techniques, that using felspar f- was a new technique we okay. developed. And there's also some really fascinating new techniques being developed by people we collaborate with in Trinity. And we, c- we collaborate with people uh, in a lot of places. The people in Trinity have been using appetite uh, okay. as a tracer. Typically, what when you think about, if you look at the literature and people talk about sedimentary provenance or where sand comes from, they tend to look at, at, at the mineral zircon mm. and dating of the mineral zircon. Yeah. But zircon is, is a mineral that's so robust, it just keeps in the system and keeps getting recycled. And if we really mm. want to learn the details about any sedimentary system, we have to use a more diverse range of minerals with um, uh, with different behaviours in the sedimentary environment. Appetite is one we can use, it's quite complementary. And felspar is one we can use, it's very complementary. Felspar is a much less stable mineral under conditions of chemical weathering so it tends to be first cycle as opposed to continually recycle through the I system see. yeah mm-hmm. everything tells you something and you just have to contextualize what that actually means and and the sedimentology will define how you should contextualize it as well interesting yeah. people keep telling me about your very engaging presentations and um, your I, I just wave my arms around that's <laughs> it I just wave my arms around. You can clearly see that now. Yeah. Uh, people listening can, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, uh, when I was uh, talking about the fact that I was having you on the show, yeah, people tell me like, oh, yeah, his presentations are great. Yeah. I'm just curious about your relation with um, science communication and do you really um, like to um, be able to communicate your research in, um, in an engaging way or you don't think about it and you're just like just doing it the right way, quote-unquote. I do like talking about science, but it's not something I I have any formal training in, and my enthusiasm is just innate uh, to me, um, and it comes from my love of science. Uh, uh, I hope I communicate it well. Um, I, I think it's important because I teach, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy teaching because I just like those, sort of, I like it when... 
you, you're explaining some something and the student finally understands it, you know, or the student gets gets it right yeah. away, you know, or yeah, not right away, but usually that kind of actually these moments of clarity of your students come when you're in the field and you can show them the things. So I would much rather communicate something to somebody by showing them rather than telling them. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I love teaching in the field. And that's and the, the sort of the um, the greatest thrill I get from, uh, in teaching is when you catch that moment where, where a student, uh, you can see it in their eyes, they get it. Yeah, yeah. And, I, oh, and, it, and they come back to you sometimes and they say, okay, I, I, I remember doing this in lectures, but it's only now that I see it, I actually mm-hmm. understand it. And uh, geology, and especially sedimentology, is a very visual science, yeah. you know, when you see these things. And even if you can then show them the processes by which these things form, it, that's a really good way of being able to communicate these things you know i think it's so just fantastic how you can look at a sedimentary rock and say so much about the environment that Mm. it was formed in just by looking at it and oh there's some wavy lines here there's some ripples left behind by an ancient river or something like that this is why i love sedimentology as well is because you can just like walk in the field in the mountains and you're like okay if there's sedimental uh, if there's sedimentary rocks here i can tell okay it was like this like that like that in the jurassic in the triassic mm-hmm. in the miocene yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. fascinating because you, you feel like you can know the history like the grander history of the place just by observing it's earth's mm-hmm. tape recorder it's yeah. earth's tape recorder you know it's yeah. only okay it's part of the story but it's a good part of the story and then tacking that on to knowing where that sediment came from gives you an actually a really nice at least parts of the jigsaw that you can start to put together yeah. yeah i was curious about the challenges of supervising so many people at once as a mere phd student mm-hmm. myself i don't really um imagine what it is to supervise even less like supervise three four people at once so mm-hmm. how do you deal with this I I wish I had all the answers, <laughs> <laughs> but every student has, and, and that includes at undergrad level. Every student has different needs, and every student, uh, you you need a a way of approaching every every student needs to be approached in a different way, um, and it's it's trying to find what that way is. I guess mm-hmm. uh, trying to find and understand what way works best. In general terms, I would just say uh, the key to being a supervisor is just being available to your students when you need them and being uh, empathetic uh, to what they need um, at the same time to encourage them to do other things other than just the research project and doing a PhD is not about answering a scientific question it's about developing a range of transferable skills mm-hmm. yeah, and well it's true yeah. for any job yeah, I guess. indeed but actually let's go back a bit in time and tell us like how you first started <laughs> 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 well I had a kind of unusual route I suppose um, I always wanted to do, uh, do geology, even though I didn't really know what it was when I was, <laughs> when I was a teenager. I had probably right. a different vision of it to the reality, but I was always curious about the landscape and mm. the, wor- the, earth, the, the world around me. Uh, and I have hugely support, supportive parents who encourage that curiosity, and, and so I went to study geology here in UCD as an undergrad some years ago. <laughs> we don't need to be specific no. and uh, I did my degree here in UCD and I knew I wanted to do a PhD 
And I started a PhD, and it was all very interesting. It was about finding out where sand was coming from. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> that was always an interesting... How convenient. When I, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been doing this for so long at this point. <laughs> but there's still sand left, and I don't know where it comes from. That's so, uh, <laughs> but then I kind of... Uh, I, I kind of... Uh, I ran out of funding, essentially, and right. the PhD really hadn't sort of come together as I would have hoped. Mm-hmm. And most of that was my own fault, my own responsibility. So I started working in uh, sort of part-time in a geological survey of Ireland. And I had a great time there, it was lovely people. And I thought, oh, I'll work there for about six months part-time. And on my time off, I'll write up the PhD. Three years later, (laughs) (laughs) and three years later, lecturers in UCD came, sort of came back to me, sort of said, we have this little project. We think if you did it, you'd be the person to do it. And we think if you did it, you could finish up your PhD. And I was kind of, well, I'm kind of working now. I've kind of given up on the idea completely of doing a PhD at this point. And they just sort of said, look, you should do this. And they were so encouraging, so hugely encouraging. I thought, OK, they think I can do this. OK, well, I'll do it. I'll give up the job at GSI. I'll come back. I'll finish my PhD. And that's really the moment. Um, and there was a couple of individuals who just showed that fate. And, it was, and I don't think many, many people would have done that. Uh, and that's sort of that's one of your sort of moments where your entire career sort of pivots, mm. because it's from there that I got to do the work on feldspar and new technique, got to apply it, to, and and work in all of these exciting places like the story about ice raft of debris, like the work uh, in different river systems, big river systems around the world, and basins all over the world. I came from that kind of moment of, I wasn't quite sure, but I tr- I came back to it, did it, and never looked back, and. You, it's like a sliding door moment when uh, yeah, you just wonder, like, had I made the other decision, yeah. would I still be working in the GSI? I was very happy working in the GSI, but I wouldn't have had this sort of academic career I've had now. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to become a lecturer, and I just love mm-hmm. teaching, so kind of, like, really worked out well, yeah. Yeah, it's weird how life can present you with those moments. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. We were talking about that with uh, one of our previous guests. Like, we just you just have to really take the opportunity at the moment and just mm. make the decision and like yeah, somehow you know that it's the right one if it's, you it's weird yeah. like yeah but but maybe there is an alternative universe where so <laughs> i made the other decision you know because it was a really close call mm. at, at the time you know mm-hmm. nice yeah so we want to know more about your hobbies and interests when you're not doing science what do you yeah. do oh i'm always doing science <laughs> <laughs> I, I work a lot but so i i I enjoy these things that are just really restful, really relaxing. Just filling around in guitars, one of those things. Mm-hmm. I'm a gamer. I like ga- I like uh, playing game computer games, um, uh, which I yeah that, that's a really good way of de-stressing I, for for me anyway. I really enjoyed playing playing computer games when I was younger, and then didn't do it for many many years and got sort of back into it. Right. I think we can go to the Twitter questions because oh. we have actually three questions that oh, really you can. Tell us a lot of um, uh, nice facts about sand with this question from Connor, who asks, what's the most interesting grain of sand you've ever looked at? (laughs) (laughs) You have to choose between the millions of grains of sand. I've seen so much sand and (laughs) I remember each individual one. (laughs) I think I've seen more sand than that now. I think perhaps, kind of like as a little side project at one point, I was looking at material from the Torridonian group, which is this really ancient, uh, but I think it's about 
depositional age of about 950 million years okay. occurs in northwest Scotland mm-hmm. and you still despite its age th- these rocks are not badly deformed um, oh. and you still see amazing sedimentology in them there so they, they would have been deposited somewhere on, on the margins of the Rodinian continent mm-hmm. so about a billion years ago so that's the um the supercontinent before Pangaea. Before Pangaea, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And they didn't look that old. They didn't look. They weren't that deformed. Mm-hmm. But one of the amazing things I remember seeing were these little components that were in the sand, which were uh, I think they're called tectites, little mm. uh, rounded grains of meteoric origin or yeah. associated with bolide impact. Yes. Yeah. And that kind of blew my mind, uh, because there was there is an event uh, apparently associated with these. Uh, with these sedimentary rocks, uh, they, they think there's evidence that there was an impact crater and an impact nearby, and oh. you were getting this de- part of this, these sedimentary units were, were these components created by this meteoric impact. So when I saw that, like, now I didn't do any further work on those, it wasn't my area, but just seeing that as a kind of component, as a typical component, it's a very unusual thing yeah. to yes. find in the sandstone sample that tells a whole story of its own. You know? That's, That's really interesting. Your former colleague, David McNamara. Oh, David was on Twitter. It's a shock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's very engaged and yeah. he, he likes the podcast. He follows it. Hi, Dave. David mm-hmm. wants to know, uh, what are your fieldwork practices? What is the most useful field tool for a sedimentologist studying provenance? You know, we'll see this. No specific tool we need for provenance work in the field because it's not something we do in the field. But what we do need for um, for for contextualizing any samples we might take in the field is we just need good sedimentology. Mm-hmm. We just need the ability to to make really good observations, uh, a pencil and a piece of paper, and producing a sketch of what is being seen. And the reason I say that rather than just take a photograph, okay, you want to really look at the outcrop you're sampling from. That's where you begin to see things like ripples and all of these sedimentary structures that will tell you something about the fascies, the the depositional environment in which your sand was deposited. Now you can take a photograph, that's fine. You can bring it back, you can look at the photograph. Maybe the light isn't, isn't that good. But if you actually draw a sketch of what you're seeing, it forces you to look very carefully at the outcrop and then you begin to really see things. So I would simply say, um, a pencil and a notebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have uh, another question, I think. So our final question comes from Mark at Dr. Marky C. Our good friend oh, Mark. Oh, Mark Holden, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he asks, is there really... Oh, that's bad grammar, Mark. It should be... <laughs> are, <laughs> <laughs> are there really more stars in the universe than grains of sand on the Earth? And even if it's true, what's more important... Sand or stars? Well, they all come from the same place. So all, all the sand in the universe originates from so, from stars anyway. So, hmm, I have to think about this a bit more. It's very <laughs> philosophical. It is, yeah. We want to know if people are going to be able to meet you at conferences in the coming days, months, years... Uh, do you have anything planned? Um, it so happens I am going to uh, uh, GSA, Geological Society of America, their big conference at, at Phoenix in Arizona later this month. 
I've been invited to give a talk about sand. <laughs> what <laughs> a surprise! Yeah. I think the session's called Beyond Zircon, so use, it's about using okay. different tools and taking different approaches. Yeah. I would like you to now answer the biggest mystery of them all. I thought that was about Around. the stars and the, <laughs> and the sand. No, there's a no. bigger mystery. No, there's a bigger mystery. Where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> yeah, that's quite a mystery. All right. Yeah, um, I sort of uh, shirk social media. So, um, but if people can email me. I that's always good. answer emails. And they can find you at the University of Galway. National University of Ireland, Galway. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> they can. And they can find my email address to iCrag. Should they need to contact me, I... Okay, you yeah. don't have Xbox, because Xbox is Xbox Live, but what's the PlayStation version of that? Oh, yeah, they can find me on, on PS4 Live. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that now, let's see what I'm playing. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll get lots of friend requests on, on that. Ah, maybe, yeah. who knows? Mm. Yeah. Maybe some of our um, listeners are also uh, gamers and want mm. to play against or with you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, um, that's all we have. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I hope this is really successful. I think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm.